Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called God's Mercy on Us All. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 17th, 2014. Last Saturday, Journey with Jesus held its quarterly board meeting to review the end of our fiscal year on June 30th. Our board gathers several times a year, but this meeting was special. Having launched Journey with Jesus in the summer of 2004, it marked the end of 10 years for our weekly webzine for the Global Church. And in ways I never could have imagined back in 2004, the operative word here is global. I reported to the board that Journey with Jesus has served over 4 million readers in our 10 years. About a thousand readers a day, every day. I know, compared to the heavy hitters on the internet, that's small beer. But what especially interests me, and is so gratifying, is that our readers come from 236 countries and territories. There are only two countries in the world where we've never had any readers, North Korea and Western Sahara. Each and every week, readers from over a hundred countries visit Journey with Jesus. This readership reminds me of the global character of God's kingdom. The first pages of the Bible describe a good creation gone very bad. The ground is cursed. Cain kills his brother Abel, and so begins fratricide. Humanity is divided by a babel of confused languages. We've been living this dark history since the dawn of civilization. But that's only the beginning of our human story, not its end. God intends something far better for us. The last pages of the Bible describe a city with people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. A divided humanity is thus united. The divine embrace has conquered human exclusion. Instead of sickness and violence, there's a tree whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. 4,000 years ago, in the most important pivot point in the Bible, Genesis 12.1, an obscure nomad named Abraham heard the promise of God. God promised Abraham that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. God repeated this promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, and to his grandson, Jacob. Through Abraham, God formed one special people, Israel. And in electing the one nation, Israel, God always intended to bless every nation. Fast forward 2,000 years from the time of Abraham. After his resurrection, Jesus told his followers to spread his message to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. In his parallel passage, Mark renders the meaning more emphatic by writing, all creation. 
Similarly, in Luke's sequel to his gospel, Jesus told his timid followers, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now fast forward another 2,000 years to today. God's promise to Abraham and its fulfillment in Jesus have become something of an empirical reality. The book of Acts begins in Jerusalem, proceeds geographically outward, and ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome. His last recorded prayer in Romans 16.26, before his martyrdom, was for all nations. Even that was only a modest beginning. Starting with a few uneducated, bedraggled disciples, today about one-third of the world identifies itself as Christian. Nearly twice as many as those who follow Islam or Hinduism. The particular story of the one-man Jesus includes a universal welcome to every person of every time and place. Jesus unites what divides us. In him are many causes of exclusion become opportunities for embrace. Jesus, himself a man on the margins of society, brings the outsider inside. As Gary Wills once wrote, no outcasts were cast out far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them. The readings this week show how this is true in the areas of sexuality and nationality. Ancient Israel excluded eunuchs from its community as blemished people. We read in Deuteronomy 23, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. In Leviticus 21, people with damaged testicles were only one of many groups of people who were stigmatized as disfigured and defective and so marginalized by the community. Whether by birth or by castration, eunuchs could not reproduce. They were biologically inferior and therefore liturgically excluded. Eunuchs were considered deformed and incomplete human beings. Castrating your enemy was a way to humiliate him even after death. Eunuchs were at best safe and harmless people who could serve in a king's court. Isaiah 56 for this week describes how God reverses this exclusion. We read, let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that will not be cut off. The play on words is shocking. Your genitals might be cut off, but your name will not be cut off from God. Instead of being rejected from the temple, eunuchs will be remembered in the temple. Jesus goes beyond eunuchs who were born that way 
or made that way by men. He honors those who've made themselves eunuch for the kingdom of God, Matthew 19, 12. The brilliant scholar Origen is perhaps the best example in the early church of taking Matthew 19.12 literally. And in Acts chapter 8, Luke portrays the Ethiopian eunuch as a paradigm of vibrant faith rather than of liturgical exclusion. So that which was a source of humiliation and exclusion, a sexual deformity, has in God's economy become a sign of divine acceptance. Psalm 67 does for nationality what Isaiah does for sexuality. It expands the boundaries of God's embrace to include people who were vilified as enemies and outsiders. I'm always amazed at how some of the Psalms move from the parochial to the global. The ancient psalmist comes from a geopolitically marginal people, and yet he prays for God's blessing to fall on all nations. God is not a territorial God, he says. He's the Lord of all nations and peoples. He invites all the ends of the earth to offer praise and thanks. Jesus reinforces this point in this week's gospel. A Canaanite woman who knew that in the eyes of the Jews she was a despised dog nevertheless earned praise as a woman of great faith. It's a short step from the categories of sexuality and nationality to those like economics, politics, gender, and socioeconomic class. In Christ, writes Paul, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christians are thus radical egalitarians when it comes to the love of God. We're all equidistant from the heart of God. In the epistle this week from Romans chapter 11, Paul levels the playing field. He says that we're all in the same boat. He writes, God has bound all people over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. <clears throat> for, for books this week, I review a book of poetry by Scott Cairns. It's called Endless Life, Poems of the Mystics. Brewster, Massachusetts, Paraclete Press, 2007, and newly republished in 2014. 142 pages. <clears throat> Scott Cairns, the Catherine Payne Middlebush Chair in English at the University of Missouri, has won numerous awards for his dozen books of poetry, memoir, essays, and translations. This book was originally published under a different title as Love's Immensity, Mystics on the Endless Life, back in 2007. It includes 116 of what he calls the adaptations and translations of the writings of 37 Christian mystics. I think of them as perhaps paraphrases. 
The selections are arranged chronologically, beginning with the Apostle Paul, Irenaeus, Melito of Sardis, Origen, Athanasius, and so on, and then concluding with St. Therese of Lisieux, who lived from 1873 to 1897. Each figure is introduced with a short biographical blurb, but otherwise there's no commentary on the adaptation translation. Scott Cairns converted to the Eastern Orthodox Church from Protestantism a number of years ago, and in a short introduction he urges Protestants to reconsider sola scriptura in favor of the importance of tradition in the formation of our faith. Many of the selections exemplify some of the Orthodox emphases, like the gift of tears, apophaticism, asadia, hesychism, and theosis. There are many of the major figures that you would expect, like Augustine, St. John of the Ladder, Eckhart, and John of the Cross, but also some lesser-known saints like Blessed Angela of Foligno, Gertrude of Helfte, Richard Rolla of Hampol, Walter Hinton, and the Russian Neil Sorsky. Cairns doesn't define what constitutes the loaded term mystic, and it would have been nice to know what text he was adapting so that a reader could return to the original. Still, these are minor quibbles. This is otherwise a rich treasure of Christian spirituality put to poetry. Amongst Cairns' many other books, readers might also enjoy the one Idiot Psalms, 2014, a collection of 53 new poems, and the book Compass of Affection, 2006, which is a collection of 85 poems from 1985 to 2006. Once again, a book of poetry by Scott Cairns, the title, Endless Life. For movies this week, I review the blockbuster Gravity. I thought this was a very flimsy film. So did my wife and son. The simple plot is one-dimensional and requires you to suspend disbelief. Dr. Ryan Stone, played by Sandra Bullock, and astronaut Matt Kowalski, played by George Clooney, are doing a routine repair on their spacecraft when disaster strikes. Space debris bashes into their craft and strands them tethered to each other and to nothing else. They twirl around aimlessly in black space. Their oxygen supply dwindles. Radio contact is lost. Question, do you think they will survive? The script is clunky with lines like, how do you like it up here? Each successive scene is more wildly improbable than the last. The music is melodramatic. But here's the crazy thing. Gravity won seven Academy Awards and was nominated for three others. The special effects are amazing, and the basic premise provokes a sort of thought experiment. Other than that, I was baffled by the movie's buzz. Gravity from 2013. And for poetry this week, we've posted a wonderful poem by Wendell Berry, poet, 
essayist, farmer, and novelist. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, then I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world, and I'm free. The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 17th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.